This morning, as we as we continue through the book of Mark, we come to a, a in Mark chapter ten, we come to a point where Jesus is asked a question that is very pertinent to us today. And he's asked a question in regards to divorce. And this follows right after talking about obedience and that true servants and true disciples go to all costs and all measures to avoid sin. But we come to this, and, and it's, a, it's a subject that I believe is incredibly pertinent today. As we see divorce running rampant through America, through the world, as we see the, the view of marriage being attacked, whether it's it's in government and, and how we define marriage, or whether it's making divorce easier and easier. I wanted to read a couple of things. This is an excerpt from a book by John Adam and Nancy Williamson, Divorce, How and When to Let Go. Your marriage can wear out. People change their values and lifestyles. People want to experience new things. Change is a part of life. Change and personal growth are traits for you to be proud of, indicative of a vital searching mind. You must accept the reality that in today's multifaceted world, it is especially easy for two persons to grow apart. Letting go of your marriage, if it is no longer fulfilling, can be the most successful thing you have ever done. Did you hear that? Say it again. Letting go of your marriage, if it is no longer fulfilling, see there's the criteria, if it is no longer fulfilling, can be the most successful thing you have ever done. Getting a divorce can be a positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented step. It can be a personal triumph. What? This, yeah, it sounds like a lot of advice nowadays. This is not focus on the family. But this is very indicative of where our culture is at. And there's so many things that are troubling about that. Because it elevates self-fulfillment. And it elevates our my needs being met. And how do I view the world above everything else? Including integrity. Including God's Word. Including everything. It's hard to read it. Barna did a study. And Barna does a lot of studies. And you have to read those carefully. But as he was looking at divorce rates in the United States, and currently the divorce rate in the United States, according to the government, is right around 49 to 50%. And what that means, that doesn't mean that 50% of all marriages end in divorce, but that means this last year, out of 1,000 people, approximately 600 got married and about 300 got divorced. And so the divorces are at about 50% of the marriages. That's how they come up with that rate. But Barna, in his assessment, wrote something I think is right on. There no longer seems to be much of a stigma attached to divorce. It is now seen as an unavoidable rite of passage, the researcher indicated. Interviews with young adults suggest that they want their initial marriage to last, but are not particularly optimistic about that possibility. There is also evidence that many young people are moving toward embracing the idea of serial marriage in which a person gets married two or three times, seeking a different partner for each phase of their adult life. And I think he's right. That's where culture is moving. That's what some of our our younger ones are, are seeing on TV and seeing in culture. And it's becoming part of who we are. This morning, we want to look at what God says about marriage and what God says about divorce. How do we know when a marriage is over? How do we know what God intends for that marriage? We see people that, that in, in our culture around us that justify divorce for all kinds of reasons, usually for the results. The ends justify the means. We're both happier now. I feel less stress. It must have been right. But what does God say to His disciples? As we look at verses 1 through 12 of Mark chapter 10, the big picture, the big idea is servants are faithful to the intimacy and permanency of marriage. Servants or disciples are faithful to the intimacy and permanency of marriage. This week we'll focus more on the permanency. Next week we'll look at the intimacy. But that's where the text is going to go. And I just start with that. The other thing that I just want to say right up front is I know that in a congregation our size, 
we have a whole lot of different situations when it comes to first marriages, second marriages, divorce. And this morning, just right before we even get into it, I want you to know that this text and God's Word is applying this to your marriage now. And that our God, if we come to Him with what has happened in the past, is a forgiving God that restores and brings us close to Him. And so right up front, 1 John 1.9, we need to remember, and it's a familiar verse, but we need to remember it. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so our, our point this morning isn't to dredge up things that God's dealt with and that you've dealt with with God and it's done. Our point is to draw a line in the sand and say as we move forward, this is our stand on marriage. And this is our, our stand on the permanence of marriage because it's not our stand, because it's God's stand. And as we study, if there's a lot of hurt in the past, a lot of pain, I encourage you to seek God and be giving Him that. And seek what God would have for your, where you're at now. And the, the relationship, the marriage that you're in. I know we have a lot of people in here that are not married too, are, are young adults. You might be thinking, oh great, I'm going to sit through a, a talk on marriage and divorce and, and that's never going to even be something I deal with because no couple goes into marriage thinking, okay, how can I get divorced? I challenge you young people to take great notes today because now is the time to figure out what God says about marriage. Now is the time to set that foundation and say, this is what I stand on, and I stand on the Word of God and what God teaches, and I will not falter from that. So I challenge you to take good notes and listen. Turn with me to Mark chapter 10. And let's see what the Bible says, what Jesus says. We're going to look at a number of different passages along with the Mark passage. Mark gives us one little scene on divorce, but we have some other passages on divorce. And my goal is today, in, in 30, 35, 40 minutes, to give us a whirlwind tour of what the Bible says about divorce. And so, um, hang on. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. A little bit of background. In ancient Judaism, at the time of the New Testament, if we think of what divorce was like, there's some things we need to understand that are happening because it's not like it is today. First and foremost, the rights of husbands and the rights of wives were completely different. If you remember when, when Pastor Andrew was talking about the Syrophoenician woman and he was talking about how the women's place in society, the women's place was much lower than the men's. And that affected everything. And one of the things that affected was divorce. During this time, men were allowed to divorce their wives. Wives were not allowed in Jewish circles to divorce their husbands. Now in the text, we're going to see Jesus turn that upside down a little bit, not allowing divorce, but showing that men and women are equal and, and being very concerned about the rights of women. In Gentile circles, sometimes women could divorce, and in special cases in Jewish circles, women could divorce. We saw that with Herodias, um, Herod Antipas's new wife, as, as she divorced her prior husband so she could marry Herod. But women were treated as second-class citizens to the point that a man, to get a divorce, he didn't have to go to a judge, he didn't have to go to court, he just had to write on a piece of paper, you are out of this marriage, or, or you are free from this marriage. And then he could dismiss her. And it was that simple. And so imagine being a wife in this culture where you relied on your husband for your, your, your needs, for your financial needs, for food, for shelter, but knowing that at any time you could be dismissed like property. And in fact, this rose out of a culture where women were treated more like property than equals, and so that's where these divorce laws came from and their traditions on divorce. One rabbi put, said, "...the man that divorces is not like the woman that is divorced." For a woman is put away with her consent or without it, but a husband can put away his wife only with his consent. Josephus, a popular historian, a secular historian of the time, 
writes that he divorced his second wife simply because he was displeased with her behavior. And so we come to this teaching in a culture where divorce was also running wild. Where it was easy to get. Where it was at the whims of the husband if his needs were being met. If she was still pleasing to him. If she didn't burn his food. And so the the Pharisees come to Jesus and they're going to attack on this sensitive issue of the time. And I I want to read through all 12 verses and then we'll go back and, and pull apart some different principles. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, a little later, and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to your text, as we come to your word, I pray that you would speak truth into our lives. That our hearts would be open to it. That we would take truth that you teach that is so counter to our culture. That we would embrace that and stand firm. May your words convict us this morning in your name. Jumping back up to verses 1 and 2, just to set the scene of what's happening here. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. The there is probably Capernaum along the Sea of Galilee, where he's been doing most of his Galilean ministry. And if you remember, starting with the transfiguration, he starts an intentional move to Jerusalem. And that can only be one thing, mean one thing. That's an intentional move to the cross an intentional move to His death, to His resurrection. Jesus knew His plan and He was working His plan and no one stood in the way. And here we see that move down. Don, if you can put up that map. Just to give you an idea. That's all very clear, isn't it? So we'll try to point some things out. Up here, I can barely see it. That's the Sea of Galilee, I'm pretty sure. And Capernaum would be right up here. And what we see from the description is he starts south towards Jerusalem. Thank you. And so he comes down here over the mountains. There's some mountains here that were a traditional travel point. And he comes down to probably about here. And this is the Jordan River flowing from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. And so Jesus and his disciples come down probably around here. And there's a Luke passage that says he was turned away from going further. And so we think at that point, he crosses over the Jordan River and comes to Perea. And that's significant, and we'll get to this, because Perea was under the control of Herod Antipas. And if you remember, Herod was the guy that killed John the Baptist. Do you remember why he killed John the Baptist? Because of Herodias, a woman that happened to be his brother's wife. And John the Baptist spoke out against the divorce and remarriage in this case. And it cost him his head. That's important to understand why the Pharisees are bringing this up in this location. They're trying to get rid of Jesus. And so if you can get rid of Jesus and have Herod do it, you don't lose any any credibility with the people. And so they come in the next verse. Thank you, Don. They come in the next verse, in verse 2, and the Pharisees came up in order to test him. And the word for test is to challenge. It wasn't that they really wanted to know what Jesus thought about divorce. They were trying to trap him. 
And it's the idea of cornering him and trapping him, most likely into saying something that Herod wouldn't like. So the setup, we see Jesus coming down and, and crossing east over the Jordan into Perea, and then the, the Pharisees try to trap Jesus on the controversy of divorce. And, and they're very hostile. And they also, if they can get him to go against the law of Moses, anything they could do that they have, have reason to attack him and reason to destroy him. So verse 2, the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now they, know, they knew full well that this was a controversy of the time. You had two major schools of thought. And, and what they're referring here to is Deuteronomy. And if you keep your finger in Mark 10 and turn over to Deuteronomy 24. And this is the only case in the actual law of Moses where, do, where divorce is discussed in a way that it was allowed. But when we read it, we find that they've gone some very different places with it. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1-4. through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife, after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Did you catch all the which way everything was going there? The idea that, that was in the law that Moses is saying is, if a man divorces his wife... And the wording here was the controversy. In verse 1, at the, at the end of, of verse 1, or the middle of verse 1, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And there was a major controversy of what it meant for indecency. Because, see, if you could find indecency in her, you could divorce her and you wouldn't have to give her her dowry back. So there was financial motivation beyond this. But if you just divorced her for no cause, you had to give her her dowry back. And the word there, the Hebrew word, actually means exposing of nakedness. And we need to understand what it's saying. This isn't just, oh, she did something I didn't like. It's literally exposing her nakedness. And so this would be a word that's inclusive of adultery, that would be inclusive of, of all kinds of indecency in a sexual way. And, and so you came into two major schools of thought. One was um, the stricter of the two, the Shammai school of thought, and it's a, an order of rabbi. And they felt that this verse literally meant for adultery of, or some sort of sexual sin. And that that was the context that, that Moses was giving here. You had the Hillel school of thought, and an, another group of Galilees, that really felt like this was any sort of indecency. And they argued that if the husband grew tired of her, we're good. You can send her away. And so they're putting Jesus right in the middle of, of this controversy. One of the rabbis in the Hillel group said, divorce is allowed even if the man found another fairer than she. We have writings that say, and I mentioned it, the burning of food. If she burns your food and you don't like that, you're welcome to divorce her. Sorry to all you young brides. Better be careful. And so that was the, the dilemma that the Pharisees were putting Jesus into. This controversy, these two schools of thought. But as you read Deuteronomy 24, a, a couple of things, and Jesus is going to point them out. One of the things is Deuteronomy 24 never commands divorce. Never commands divorce it assumes that divorce is happening and tries to limit it and tries to protect the women that are involved. Because what would happen is the first man would, would, would divorce the wife, put her away. The second man would take her and she was being passed around like property. And the, the instruction was literally the first husband is not to remarry her at that point. Because the first oath, the first covenant of marriage was severed at the point she got remarried, and her commitment is to that second marriage. 
And, and there were financial reasons that this would protect him because the first husband might simply take her back for, to get the new dowry that she got or, or get the money that she got from the, the, the second husband, especially if he had died. And so this was designed to protect the women. And as we're going to see what Jesus says, it was given because of the hardness of their heart, not because this was Jesus' plan. So that's the context that we, we come into verses 1 and 2. So for the rest of the passage, I just want to answer some questions about divorce. The first is the problem. Why do so many treat divorce so lightly? And this is where Jesus goes next. As we read on in the text at verse 3, I'll turn back to Mark as well. Mark chapter 10, verse 3. He answered them, what did Moses command you? And I would underline the word command. Because Jesus is being very intentional with his words. What did Moses command you? This is brilliant. Jesus knows that they're trying to trap him. And so he turns it back on them. Okay, what does the law say? What did Moses command? We read on. They said, Moses allowed... Do you notice the change of word that they used? Jesus asked what? Moses... What did Moses command? The Pharisees answer? Moses allowed. And so Jesus already has them going down the path toward truth. He, he's already teaching. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command. And the word for hardness of heart there is stubbornness a stubborn adherence to sin that my way is right and God's way is not. So the problem that Jesus begins to address is why do people allow divorce? Why do they treat it so lightly? And where he goes with it is it's because of a hardness of heart. That divorce is a result of a stubborn self-reliance. It's hard to hear. Because that's very different than it's a positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented step. A personal triumph. And so the Pharisees here have to acknowledge the weakness of their position. They can't say Moses commanded it. They know that. And they missed it because Jesus is going to go back further to what Moses wrote, to what is commanded by God. And I'm challenged by why do we miss what's commanded and why do we look for what's allowed or tolerated? Your kids ever do that? Your kid, why are all the parents laughing? Your kids ever see how close to the line they can get? See what's allowed? See what they can get away with? Or is it, man, I'm going to stay as far from sin as I can or I'm going to stay as far away from what God doesn't want and and adhere to what He does want. See, God's plan is for marriages to stay together. And Jesus is going to go there in the next section. But the Deuteronomy passage was not a passage that made divorce acceptable, but a passage that would limit divorce. It was a passage that, that Moses gave to protect women from evil that was happening in their culture. Not saying this is God's ideal. And they missed it. And that's very haunting to me when he says this was allowed because of the hardness of your hearts. Because Jesus is pointing inside them and he's pointing inside every one of us to how often do we treat marriage and and, and look at it as a way for my needs to be fulfilled and for for my wants and desires to, to happen. I firmly believe we have elevated our own pursuit of happiness over the pursuit of God's glory, and that's the problem. We have elevated our own pursuit of happiness over the pursuit of God's glory. I mean, hey, in America, it's even in our Constitution. We have a right to the pursuit of happiness. The problem is, is that's not in God's Word. 
God's word says you are called to pursue God's glory. And he is good, and he has good things for you when we do. But when it comes to marriage, divorce, and so many issues, we have elevated our own pursuit of happiness. One, of, one survey I was looking online, and I just did, I said, um, why do people get divorced? Stats or something like that. And I was looking for reasons for divorce. Five were almost always near the top of every one of these. Um, communication problems. We're not communicating well. And, and that's a real problem. It's something to work on. Next one was almost always unhappiness. In fact, 60% of people said they divorced because they were unhappy. 56 said incompatibility with spouse. Then we go down to financial problems and emotional abuse. But as we think about what culture teaches, we do see a trend that is so clear that says, if I fall out of love, if, if it's not meeting my needs anymore, then it's time to move on. A well-known prominent leader in, in some Christian circles a month ago was asked what he would advise someone if, if their spouse had Alzheimer's, a husband if their wife had, had Alzheimer's. And this prominent Christian teacher said, I would advise them to divorce her and move on so they can move on with their life. When challenged by the, the, the evangelical community, praise God they challenged him, he came back just a couple weeks ago and said, well, you know, that was just one case, and the problem is it was on his radio show. And it denies the faithfulness of God, and it denies the permanence of marriage. And whether he realized it or not, he was elevating happiness and my needs over God's intentions and God's glory. And it's painful to see. It's painful to see. As we go through our marriages, those that are married in the next couple weeks, I encourage you to start looking at the times that you're frustrated. The times that you argue. The times that you're, you're saying, man, this is hard. And marriage is hard. It takes work. And it's worth it. But look at those times and ask yourself the question, why am I upset? Am I really upset that my needs or my wants aren't being met? I love what the author of Sacred Marriage says, marriage was never designed to make you happy. It was designed to make you holy. Well, remember last week? How do we become, how are we refined? Through trials, through difficulty. And your husband, your wife, is not to be the sole source of your happiness and your needs being met. They can't do it. And if that's the pedestal you have them on, they will fail. And you will question your marriage. God Almighty is the only one that can meet those needs. And so Jesus says, Moses, verse 5, And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So Jesus deals with their light treatment of marriage. But he doesn't stop there. He, that, that initially deals with their question. They, they don't have much to say after that, but Jesus is not one to let a teachable moment pass, especially on an issue that is tearing their society apart and ours. And so the next thing he goes into is answering the question, why is the covenant of marriage permanent? Why is it serious and permanent? Why do, what foundation do we have that says we should stick with marriages? And so in verse 6, Jesus also appeals to what Moses said. Except this time it's commanded by God and created by God because he, instead of going back to Deuteronomy, says, let's go back to Genesis. 
Let's start at the beginning. Let's go back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and that's what Jesus quotes here. Verse 6, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Beautiful passages, quoting Genesis 1.27, Genesis 2.24. In Genesis 1.27 we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him male and female he created them. Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And point number one on your notes under the question, why is the covenant of marriage serious and permanent? Jesus' answer is because God is the author of marriage. It was His idea. God is the author of marriage and divorce, divorce violates His intention in what He has created. So Jesus is appealing to the very foundation of the world. The law of, even, of Eden supersedes Moses. And it reveals God's intentions for us. And if you look at those verses that in, in Mark there, and, and you see what Jesus is saying, you see that God is the author. He made them male and female. He made them to be able to be in a marriage relationship, in a one relationship. And then in verse 7, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, or be permanently joined, permanently bonded. And we see in, in the idea of leaving father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And then in verse 8, And the two shall become one flesh. We see an intimacy that, God, that Jesus is describing. That marriage is about Intimacy. And he's using the example of one flesh, which does mean a sexual union between a husband and wife, but it means so much more. It means a union of their persons into a new person. Into a completely new person. And as we read verses 8 and 9, it emphasizes the permanence. And the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. Literally, let man not tear apart. And because the, the, the marriage relationship forms a new covenant and a new oneness, and, and, and it's a physical oneness of a new person, to tear it apart would be like taking any of us and starting at the head and tearing you in two. That's the imagery that he is saying. Let man not tear you in two. Do you see the permanence? I have a couple of, of symbols here. One that we're very familiar with. At a wedding, we often have the unity candle. And each side represents the individual lives. And we always have the couple take the candle and light the center candle. And this candle represents the new oneness, the new entity that God is creating. And we blow out the side candles, not to say that they aren't people anymore, but God has taken two, and in only His math, He makes one out of two. And one plus one equals one. And that one cannot be divided, it cannot be separated. And it's beautiful imagery in a wedding. I wanted to add another fun one. And maybe this is more for the guys. Marriage is like Bondo. I don't know if you're familiar with Bondo. It's a body filler of cars, right? Or, or other things, wood and, and things like that. And in Bondo, you have two different ingredients. One is called the filler. I'll put some of this on the plate. Man, the stuff smells. And you have the filler, and it's just filler. Nothing changes. It's a stable compound. And then you have the hardener, and it's a separate compound. You put the hardener on top of the filler and you mix the two together. And as you mix the two together, it's actually a chemical reaction that forms a new compound. 
Neither of the separate compounds are still there. I mean, they're there in the new compound, but the filler is not just filler anymore. The hardener is not just hardener anymore. And it forms a new compound that you cannot separate in any way. You could strain it. You could do whatever you want. And the thing about Bondo, and we'll see this in a few minutes if I can get it to, to work right, Bondo quickly hardens. And as Bondo hardens in just a few minutes, it becomes this solid, rock-solid substance that cannot be penetrated and cannot be separated. In fact, the things that you use Bondo to, to adhere will often break before the Bondo will break. So think about that with marriage, because that is what Jesus is saying here. When the two become one flesh, what God has joined together, let man not separate. This is the imagery that he's giving is two separate things that are joined and interwoven together that become a new thing. A sacred moment in the covenant of marriage where God creates and we cannot separate. We'll let that dry. I am going to close it up so I don't pass out. (laughs) Can you smell it there? Sorry about that. God is the author of marriage. It was His idea. And that is why we take it seriously. And that is why it's permanent. But something else I want you to catch from those verses. Not only is God the author, which Jesus says in verse 6, which means it's His plan, but in verse 9, do you read that first phrase? What therefore God has joined together. He's the author, but He's also the agent. He created marriage, but on every marriage, every couple that stands up here, it's not them that are getting married. Well, yeah, they're up there. They're not doing the work. They're not creating something new. God is creating something new. He is the agent of that new entity. Now, now keep in mind the ramifications of that. If he's, If it's his idea and his creation and he's the agent to make it happen, Who is the only one that can say when it's over? God. Does that make sense? Imagine if you work on your house and and you you build your house and you spend a a couple years adding on to your house and you have this beautiful house and the next day one of your neighbors comes along and says, I don't like it. And they pull up in their bulldozer and they start to tear down your house. How are you feeling? Woohoo, love my neighbor. No, it's not their house. They didn't create it. They didn't build it. They have no right to destroy it. Do you see where Jesus is going with this? We didn't create it. We didn't build it. We didn't make the new entity. God did. What God has joined together, let man not separate. And so when a couple stands up here, this is standing on hallowed ground. And it is a sacred moment where God is creating something brand new. And so Jesus says, God is the creator of marriage. He's also the agent of marriage. Your marriage isn't yours. It's His. And when we get to that understanding, then we start to see what God can do in our marriages. Let's see before we move on. It's all it took. It's already getting hard. May we have a lot of bondo in our marriages. If you want some afterwards, you can get some. Second, point number two, under why the permanence and seriousness of marriage. And this comes later in the New Testament. But apply. So this isn't from Jesus' teaching in Mark, but from, the, from God's teaching in the New Testament. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Actually a much broader section than that, but just two verses. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Sound familiar? Quoting the same passage out of Genesis 2. And the two shall become one flesh. 
This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And the second reason why we should take such care of our marriages is because they are pictures of Christ and His church, His people, to a fallen world. We sang songs this morning, and almost all of them were about the faithfulness of God. And, and the, the idea is that God is faithful to His church, to, to His, His spouse, And that we then model that faithfulness. That faithfulness that God shows His children is the same faithfulness we are to show our spouse. For fear of smearing the name of Christ. For fear of letting people see a Christianity that is not true. Our marriages reflect God's relationship with His people. May we reflect well. Finally, the last question on your notes, the ramification. What ends the covenant of marriage in God's eyes? Remember, He's the author. He's the creator. He's the instigator. He's the agent. So He gets to set the rules. Agreed? Makes sense? And so throughout God's Word, we see various instructions of divorce When is the covenant of marriage dissolved in God's eyes? Are there cases? Because I I know where this goes and I've talked with people, well, what about this? Or you wouldn't expect me to live in this. Or what about this? And so we see in Scripture God defining when you are free from the covenant of marriage. And a couple of things. Verse verse 11, let's, let's go to 10, 11, and 12 first. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, they're confused. They're like, wow, Jesus is really strict on this one. Sabbath, not so much, but divorce, wow. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Right there, they would have been, what? You have to understand, again, the tradition is male-dominated. You never committed adultery against a woman you committed adultery against her new husband or her future husband. But you couldn't commit adultery against a woman. And, and ladies, that's, I'm not saying that's the way it should be today, that, 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 that hierarchy. But that was the culture that they were in. And Jesus here is saying, no, no, you're, you are offending my daughters. You are sinning against my daughters. It's not just about men. It's about who I've created and who is in my image. But catch what he's saying here. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Why is marrying another after a divorce has been processed adultery? There can only be one answer. In God's eyes, that marriage covenant, the first marriage covenant, is still in effect. Otherwise, the sin isn't adultery. Maybe fornication. Maybe some other things. But the only way the sin is adultery is if God still sees the first marriage covenant as valid and in effect. That is transforming when we start to realize what that means. See, the only time that God no longer views that as an effect is when it follows His plan. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And that, that was so out of the ordinary for their culture too. And Jesus is holding both men and women responsible. So what ends the covenant of marriage in God's eyes? Three things. The first is when a spouse dies. When a spouse dies. In fact, this is God's plan. Till death do us part. We think, well, isn't that sort of obvious? But it was dealt with throughout the New Testament, two places in particular, Romans 7, verses 2 and 3. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. 
And Paul here in Romans is saying, if your spouse passes away, you are free from that covenant of marriage and you are free to enter into a new covenant of marriage. 1 Corinthians 7.39, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord, specifying that that, um, she should find a Christian man to marry. And so death is God's plan for the ending of the covenant of marriage. However, we see a couple of other exceptions that Jesus gives. And and we see it in Matthew. In the parallel passage in Matthew 19, for sake of time, I'll read these. And also Matthew 5, I think I put the, the verses there. In Matthew 5, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In Matthew 19, he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And it's the parallel passage, and he's talking about the hardness of heart. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And so we see that God does allow divorce and not command. He allows in the case of marital infidelity. It's not the desired outcome. And as I counsel men and women, the, the, the desired outcome even of that kind of situation is to try to work it out. If they're repentant, if they're coming back to God, to try to see the healing power of God in that relationship. But if that can't happen, Jesus allows divorce in that case, and that person would be free to remarry. And finally, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 12-16 says, Divorce by an unbelieving spouse. Divorce by an unbelieving spouse. And I'll read that as well. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Paul is bringing him back to you never know what God's going to do. If it's up to you, stay in that marriage. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Then verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. They are free from the covenant of marriage. God has called you to peace. And so in God's word, what he says is the three things that can dissolve a marriage in his eyes are death, Divorce because of marital infidelity or divorce by an unbelieving spouse. And that's it. And we we in our heads can start to think of so many other reasons. And and, and I want to say, and, and right up front, there are situations that I recommend couples at least get away from each other and separate. Wives, if you're in a situation where your husband is hitting you, that is not a situation you are to stay in. But to confront and to separate and to get help. If kids are being abused, that needs to be confronted and they need to be protected. But sometimes we jump to divorce as the way to do that when there are so many other ways that might accomplish God's purposes. The subject of divorce is challenging. And again, I end where we started. In a congregation our size, we have have so many different experiences with divorce. And we come to passages like this, and it can be very easy to live in the past and to beat ourselves up and to say, man... If I had known, or if I, if, I, if I had just followed Christ. 
But again, I reaffirm that our God, when we come to him and confess, he is faithful to forgive and faithful to restore and bring his children close to him. But I pray that we, as Village Bible Church, who in our vision statement say we're building Christ-focused families, that we will draw a line in the sand and make a commitment to strong marriages. Because that is what God authored. And that is what he created. Next week, we'll talk more on the intimacy side. And and, and really the missing piece from this week is, okay, how do we do that? Pastor Ron, are you saying if I'm in a miserable situation that I'm just supposed to, to, to live in it? No, you're supposed to do some things, but some different things than divorce. (laughs) And so we'll talk about that next week, and we'll try to give some tools to say, okay, how can we build strong marriages? How can we divorce-proof our marriages? But it starts with a commitment to God's plan, a commitment to being one, to being one in flesh and physically, only in the context of marriage, which again, purity comes back to Genesis 1 and 2 and God's plan and the Creator's plan. Because He says a man and wife, they'll leave their parents, cleave to each other in that covenant of marriage, and then they will be one flesh. Anything else will destroy the intimacy and the plan of God. But are we committed to having one candle, to being hard bondo, that nothing can separate. I challenge you this week to make that commitment. And next week, let's talk about what that means and work on some some ways to improve that. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, you have given us the ability to, to marry, to be one, and it's a miracle, a miracle that is performed by your work, by your action. And Lord, I pray that sitting in this room, if there's any that are struggling in their marriages and wondering how to even go on, that you would start by reaffirming in them a commitment to that marriage and a commitment to your word and your principles. And then we can move forward and build strong homes. Lord, I pray that if any are here struggling with their past, that you would help them to see your restorative power and your forgiveness, that that guilt can be given to you, dealt with on the cross, and that they would experience your faithfulness. Lord, may our homes at Village Bible Church be lights for you that the world would take notice of. In Jesus' name.